Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles, arms now wide. If we're going to fear, we fear no evil, we will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're going to stand, we stand as giants. If we're going to walk, we walk as lions. Good morning. Good morning. It is the 11th of August, 2022. I'm Carmen LaBurge. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day is Proverbs 14.29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. So let's talk about this. Um, You and I have heard that patience is a virtue. What does that mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to be a person of patience? Well, Paul puts patience on the list of character qualities and personal attributes that are the outward fruit of a life that is characterized by God, of a person possessed of the Holy Spirit. So patience makes the list in Galatians chapter 5 of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But what is patience? Well, patience is a divine attribute. And those who are patient are demonstrating godly character. I mean, likewise, those who fail to be patient, who are quick-tempered, as it says in this uh, this proverb today, you know, display folly. They display an ungodliness. Second Peter 3 confirms that God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in Nahum 1.3, we are reminded that God is slow to anger, very patient, But that same verse also points to the reality that God's patience eventually runs out, that at the end of God's patience, God, quote, will not leave the guilty unpunished. So God is amazingly patient, but there is a divine timetable of some kind, and God's patience is like a restrained endurance of love. The patience of Christ is described by Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.5 as steadfastness. Elsewhere, you'll see the word perseverance. And as we read the Bible, you're going to see the word patience show up in lists that include words like mercy and grace. Or together with words, here I'm thinking about Romans 2-4, where patience comes alongside kindness and forbearance. The patience of God is demonstrated in just how long God waits for sinners to come home. Consider God's patience with the people in the days of Noah. Or consider God's patience with the people in the days of the judges or the days of the prophets or the days of the kings or, yeah, in the days in which you and I live. Why is that? Well, Paul tells uh, Timothy that God was immensely patient with him, leading to his salvation. So yes, patience um, is a virtue. God's patience is an expression of his hopeful grace. It's meant to lead to repentance. Romans 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 1.16. Patience is a virtue because it is a divine attribute. So when Solomon notes in today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day, which you can sign up for at myfaithradio.com, 
When he says, whoever is patient has great understanding, he also, you know, points to the reverse. If you're quick-tempered, you display that you're not a person of godly character because God is slow to anger. God is patient. So when we are not, what does that say about us? It's worthy of note that God's patience is lengthy but not endless. God waited for the people to repent in the days of Noah, and when they did not, he flooded them with his judgment. God told Abraham that he would bring judgment on the Canaanites, but it was with great patience. And God withheld judgment because of their sin. The Bible tells us that it hadn't reached its full measure. We don't really know what that means, but God does. It's often very hard to understand why God does not send forth judgment on those who sin against the weak or sin against the defenseless or the desperate, people who take advantage and harm other people who are in need. But those who have understanding know that God will ultimately hold every person to account. God is patient, desiring that each and every one would come to the point of repentance. But those who do not are going to experience the unbearable reality of God's wrath. And that is something I wish for no one. So today, if you have not responded to God's very patient grace, let me invite you to turn to him today. Let today be the day that you that you meet and match this immense patience of God and turn to him and allow him to grant you his grace. And for those of you who are patiently waiting for the salvation of someone else, keep hoping, keep waiting, be patient um, with them as God has been patient with each one of us. Next up, we're going to talk with our friend Ben Johnson. He and I are going to do what I like to call a bricklaying conversation. We're going to talk about what it really means to cultivate and apply the mind of Christ to the matters of this day. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ben Johnson is back. You can follow him on Twitter. He's the rights writer. He's also a senior reporter and editor at the Washington Stand. Good morning, my friend. Good morning, Carmen. So, um... Today, I would like to take a step back and lay a foundation um, because you and I keep building on a conversation and we make assumptions about um, the foundation beneath those conversations. And so I thought that today, if you would be willing, we would go back and have what I'll describe as a bricklaying conversation um, about how it is that we cultivate and apply the mind of Christ to the matters of the day. So we might get to a headline or two or a cultural thread here in a minute, but um, can we just have a conversation about training, being trained up and training each other up in righteous thinking? That would be a fantastic conversation for us to have. All right. So what does it mean for the mind to be trained in righteousness? Or what does it mean to cultivate the mind of Christ on the matters of the day? 
Well, to begin with, uh, obviously, it begins with a personal relationship with Christ. Uh, that has to be the foundation of everything. It's impossible for us to look at uh, the broader problems that face society or groups of people before we look at ourselves. Uh, so the very beginning begins with a personal relationship with Christ. Uh, it means uh, that we have confessed our sins, that we have surrendered to the will of God, that we are making uh, a dedicated pursuit of following God's will in our lives to the best extent possible, living a life of confession, confessing our sins to God, asking for uh, help and direction to overcome persistent sin and to root out uh, that kind of that kind of behavior and all those temptations that lead us into thinking about that kind of behavior. That's uh, the very beginning. Uh, we cannot rule others before we rule ourselves, and if everyone ruled themselves, there'd be no need for any ruler at all, uh, which was essentially the constitutional understanding of our founding fathers. Everyone would rule himself, herself. Uh, everyone would be ruled by the Spirit of Christ. And if everyone kept to uh, those basic rules of morality, there'd be no need for the government to intervene, whatever. There would be very little serious crime. Uh, you would have a government that was honest and trustworthy because it was as honest and trustworthy as the people who were led by the Spirit of God. Uh, so that's that's sort of the, the very beginning of it. Uh, then when we cultivate the mind of Christ, uh, that means, of course, going deep into uh, the Word of God, understanding the principles of the Word of God. Uh, I'm aided by a, a particular religious tradition that uh, has very deep roots. Others may have uh, other materials that they use, catechisms, uh, Westminster Catechism for some, or the Lutheran Catechism or others. But uh, we have a moral tradition that goes along with the Bible that helps us understand some moral issues are, are uh, obviously all uh, moral issues are important, but some have been treated with greater gravity than others, particularly when it comes to uh, broader society. So things like uh, the taking of innocent life, things that interfere with home and family life. Uh, the oppression of the poor by using different standards in favoritism, in contracts or in civil law or in criminal law. Uh, those sorts of things then shape the way that we look at broader society. We take those principles and apply them to the headlines of the day. Yeah, I appreciate your um, your pointing there to like the, the tradition um, upon which you you rely right those are that's the council of the people um of the faith it's what what has the church said about this over the course of time what do our creeds or our catechisms or um you know our foundational documents in terms of who we are not as a person in christ but as a people redeemed in christ and um this is not a lone ranger experience um as as a christian this is a a person who is then a part of a family, a part of a body of believers, um, that we have this communal approach to discerning what God has said in his word by the inspiration and power of his spirit. It's not just about individual interpretation. And I think part of the confusion, and maybe we can circle back around to this here in just a minute, Ben, um, I think part of the confusion is when we today, today, as you know, a, a people awash in a culture of of self-expression. When we hear the term "self-governed" or um, a, a, you know, governed by the people, we here in America today, or many people in America today, actually hear autonomy, personal, individual autonomy. When they hear "self-governed," that's not what the framers meant. 
um, they were talking about a people who were self-governed because they were a people governed individually and then corporately by God. So can we talk about some of the things that the founders said um, about how this government um, by, for, and of the people would work only if it was this moral people under, um, you know, under the sovereignty uh, and authority of God? Oh, please. Uh, we, we, right. we need to walk down this road. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to lay some bricks. We're going to continue walking down this road today with Ben Johnson. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show we do on the Faith Radio Network every day. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources waiting for you to take advantage of and share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. Be sure to check us out on social media as well. Um, This is a community of believers, and we gather together here, and we all need prayer. And, well, we'd love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer. We pray for specific requests every single week when we gather on Tuesdays and Thursdays as a staff. So share your prayer request with us anonymously and securely on our website at MyFaithRadio.com and then be assured of our prayers for you in the spirit of Christ. Check it all out at MyFaithRadio.com. We're talking with Ben Johnson. He tweets at The Rights Writer. Uh, he is a senior uh, reporter and editor for The Washington Stand. We're talking um, today about you know the, the road upon which we're walking together as a people today, particularly in the United States of America. So for those of you listening around the world, um, we are going to talk about the foundations of this country, the United States, particularly as um, an experiment in self-governance of the people, by the people, for the people. Um, And it was been in the minds of the framers of these ideas. um, It was in their mind that the people were, would be a people of virtue. Um, So can we talk a little bit about uh, James Madison, John Adams, others, and maybe some things that they said and thought about the people who would be governed by the constitution they were writing? Right. And the the Constitution, of course, is a, a, a government uh, document that is intended for a limited government. And the government is intended to be limited because the people have the capacity to live in the kind of world that would allow for a limited government, uh, which is precisely one where we are spirit led. Uh, we are pursuing the will of God in our lives. And therefore, we don't need to be uh, restrained by a government because we're not indulging our passions uh, to the greatest uh, degree that is possible for us. When a people's manners become degenerate, then the government has to become uh, larger. It has to become more oppressive simply to keep everyone in line. And uh, uh, you see this in various uh, dictatorships, tin horn uh, uh, dictatorships around the world, where in many parts of the world, uh, the, the government is oppressive of people who are not pursuing this. Uh, when, when it comes to uh, the Constitution, the Constitution was never meant to be the final word Uh, When it came to the way that society was ordered, it was understood that people would order themselves according to Christian virtue, and the government would preside over that uh, to intervene when there were disputes and so on, but people would essentially follow the spirit of God. 
And you're right. It's an important distinction you pointed out of self-governing. Self-governing does not mean that we are making the law on our own. We are simply asking that the Spirit of God rule within us and that we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. We are not going to, in the manner of Genesis chapters 2 and 3, where the serpent reveals himself and simply says, let everyone determine right and wrong for himself. Uh, so that's that is the most ancient temptation against Christianity. And the founders understood if we have a virtuous people, then government can remain limited. Uh, you were talking about uh, John Adams. Of course, his most uh, famous quotation is about the Constitution, saying our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Uh, I would also point people to what uh, used to be taught in uh, many schools, which was the farewell address of George Washington, where he says, let us not indulge too, clear, uh, too, uh, too soon the supposition that it's possible to have morality without religion. Uh, and he talked about how dependent the government is on a moral people. Uh, so the, the father of our country, one of the people who was most intimately involved in the Constitution, and of course the father of the Constitution, James Madison, a uh, wonderful quotation which you were kind enough to uh, share offline, I want to share online, and I want to give credit where it's due, uh, it, it says simply, and this is, quote, what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections of human nature? Sufficient virtue among men for self-government is necessary. Otherwise, nothing less than the chains of despotism can restrain them from destroying and devouring one another. So um, I, I would add simply to that, uh, if you take a look at uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, not a founder, but someone who had a, a tremendous amount of influence, he always talked about the mystic chords of memory chiming and uh, working on the better angels of our nature so that uh, eventually the divisions that had crept up uh, between us that led to civil war would be overcome and that we would begin to love our country and love one another again by understanding that we're all Americans. We also need that mutual love for one another uh, that comes about because we recognize we're all God's creatures. And without that, we will truly be at one another's throats in every public forum. So let me bring a particular um, just headline quickly into the conversation because there's there was chaos at a city council meeting in Los Angeles where the public debate over the course of time has been um, about potentially limiting those who are camping in urban areas. So urban campers, also known um, here in this piece of legislation as the homeless. Um, so people are camping and they are um, preventing children from being able to access public schools. They are preventing parents from being able to safely um, usher their children into preschool settings. And so the city, uh, uh, this, um, uh, the city council had before it um, a measure that would limit where uh, people could urban camp, where the homeless could set up tent cities. Um, and saying, hey, it needs to it needs to be at least 500 feet from a school or a preschool. And there were people who thought that measure was unreasonable. And instead of um, acting in a way that was civil, they acted in ways that were certainly not civil. And the police had to get involved and um, create a physical barrier and remove people from the chamber. Um, how is it that we've arrived at the place where people think that, you know, chaos, creating chaos is going to, um, you know, is going to somehow achieve the end of an ordered society. 
Well, in, in so many of these cases, my, my heart really does go out to the uh, people who are creating the chaos, unfortunately, not uh, to sign off on what they're doing, but simply because quite often they have legitimate grievances against the government. Uh, as you mentioned, there, there are a lot of things that governments on uh, the West Coast have done that have made the homeless problem very, very difficult and have brought that into the lives of their children. Uh, and there are others who are saying that uh, this, as you say, uh, would be uh, an immoral step. They're motivated by love for the poor. Uh, I think uh, maybe not always uh, the wisest course of action in the way that they've handled it, but they're dealing with the best of motivations. So here are two people motivated by the very best love of their children, love of the poor, and it's impossible for them to get together on reasonable uh, mi middle way steps that would that would help everyone who's involved. Um, why have we gotten to this step? Uh, I, I think in part uh, it's it's because of an imperious kind of government that has no interest in receiving feedback. I think that's one uh, often uncredited actor here uh, is is simply government arrogance that it has no interest in hearing from people. But then uh, also from the idea that if the government doesn't uh, immediately do what I want, it's okay for me uh, to impose chaos on everyone else as a condition because that's been rewarded so often. Uh, it's, it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's uh, becoming ungovernable for the sake of becoming ungovernable. And it's been rewarded so often that people now believe it's a strategy. It's the it's the express way to get what you want. So uh, I, I think that those two things work in tandem uh, to the to the degree that people have taken it up as a strategy, uh, as a way of getting what they want. And it's uh, quite frequently it's paid off. So. So uh, you, you're going to see more and more of this until finally uh, it's, it's understood that people are not going to be rewarded. Uh, this is not going to end up uh, causing the change that they want. It's only going to bring uh, repression. I like this quote from um, a professor at Princeton. His name's Robbie George. Um, if you guys don't follow him, he's, uh, he's worthy of a follow among the uh, educated elite of the day. Robbie George says, um, people lacking in virtue could be counted on to trade liberty for protection, for financial or personal security, for comfort, for having their problems solved quickly. And there will always be people occupying or standing for public office who are happy to offer that deal. So I think that, um, Ben, when we consider the conversations that we're having today and we consider the state of our union here in the United States of America, it's a worthy conversation to have um, and yes, agreeing with uh, with those of you on the text line chiming in and saying, um, you know, America was never a quote unquote Christian nation. Um, yeah, we're not. That is actually not what we're arguing. What we're arguing is if you don't have um, people of um, uh, of moral uh, whose morals, whose morality, whose personal and therefore public behavior is guided by God then you end up in um, the kinds of situations that we see not only in the Los Angeles City Council, but in protests across the country um, where, you know, people feel more than willing to disrupt someone at dinner or, um, you know, or invade their personal space or even their personal property or their home as if um, there's no moral boundary anymore, um, that I can do whatever is right in my own eyes, you know, the other person be damned. And that's not going to work. That is not an ordered society. That is not going to work. Um, in, individual self-expression where, as in the days of the judges, everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Yeah, that's not America. And so um, that's the conversation that I think we need to figure out how to have. Yeah. And, and uh, more importantly, uh, not only is it uh, it's 
it's wrong. It's morally wrong. And it, it, it makes it impossible for us to have any cohesion within our society. Uh, and by the way, that I would just add one addendum to that Robbie George quotation. You're right. He is a true elite. Uh, the, the kind who uh, deserves to be followed and des- deserves to have his voice amplified. I would simply add that the liberty that's being traded isn't simply their liberty. It is everyone's liberty. Our it's impossible liberty. to destroy right. liberty without it affecting and impacting everyone in society. Amen. Hey, Ben, as always, thank you so much. I love the bricklaying conversations. I think they're really helpful. Thanks, Ben. It was, it was fantastic. Thank you as always. God bless. You too. You too. Hey, um, let's hear a word from our friend Max Lucado. He put that hunger in your heart. He put that fire in your soul. His love is the reason. All right, what difference um, do mere words make in a culture where everyone seems to be screaming at one another all the time? Well, I would argue that words make all the difference. Words matter because the word matters. Uh, in the beginning, God said. So words matter. From the very beginning, God has used words to communicate his presence, his will, his uh, plans, his pleasure, his heartbreak, his disappointment, his redemptive power, his love. Yeah. And he does, um, he communicates all of that then through human agency. I mean, you know, the written word of God. Ultimately, God communicates through the word made flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory and his name is Jesus. And in his infinite grace, God has placed his word within us, within those who believe by the power of his own spirit. We are witnesses to his word. We have his word as expressed in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. We have the very spirit of Christ dwelling within us. Um, Words matter. Words matter. We're his mouthpieces today. So it is to the words of one brother in Christ whose words changed the course of a nation in recent days. We're going to turn to that next. Think your words don't matter? Think again. They may just change the course of human history in real time. Well, we are privileged today to have Reverend Les Isaac with us. He started an an organization called Street... Uh Uh-oh, is it Street Preachers? Street Preachers. Um, Founder of Ascension Trust UK. Um, He's with us this morning to talk about a recent experience he had where, you know, the words that he spoke actually have changed the world. Um, Pastor Isaac, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. So um, take us back to the morning of July the 5th of this year. What had you been invited to do, and maybe what was your preparation for um, for that particular sermon? Well, Carmen and, and all your listeners, um, every year, in fact, for the past 40 years, um, once a year in Parliament, there is a meeting, a breakfast meeting, with church leaders from right across the spectrum of uh, faith and denomination and politicians. And what the church is encouraged to do, the local church, is to invite their local MP, member of parliament, to that breakfast meeting where there are prayers offered for them and the whole uh, machinery of parliament, and where we could ask the question, how do we work together with our local parliamentarian in our community for the common good of the community in which we live in. 
So that's been happening. So I was invited to be the guest speaker that morning to speak on the subject of the common good. And um, from that invitation, beside me when we started was Boris Johnson, the prime minister. On the other side was the leader of the opposition and the Archbishop of Canterbury and many others. So when you um, talk with us about your preparation for any sermon and then your preparation for this one in particular. Well, it was interesting because I had to produce my sermon and submit it to the organizers of of, of that breakfast um, some weeks before the actual event. So obviously, I've got a text from Philippians chapter 2, and, you know, I've got to pull out of that text something and make it contextualized to contextualize it for the event. And it was an interesting time because, you know, when you're preparing a sermon, you think you've got it together. You're trying to contextualize it. You're trying to answer what is God saying? How is it relevant to the, to the audience? And I sent it to them. And in fact, you know, there was about three drafts of the sermon. And finally, you know, I got a draft. But, you know, like all speakers and preachers, even the, the, before we get up to speak, something new is coming to us. So mm-hmm. for me, I had a framework of the sermon, but I was open to God and his spirit to say, okay, is there anything you don't want me to say? Is there anything you want me to say that is not in this text? And and basically, it was just delivering what I believe was the heart and the mind of what God wanted everyone within that room, within that breakfast meeting to hear. So I would love for you to share with us um, the, you know, I know you can't share the whole thing, but, you know, share the gist of it, share the nugget. What was it that the Spirit of the Lord spoke through you on that day? Because they were words that landed powerfully in more than one human heart. I think the first thing that I wanted to bring across to the to the audience was how God, who made the universe, God, who is the king and sovereign lord of creation, how he came in, you know, down and dwell amongst us, the incarnation, God dwelling, God humbling himself um, and coming um, in the form of a man to serve us, to die for us, you know, to reach out to us. And I began to look at that and talk about servitude, we're all called, whether we are politicians or ministers, you know, but we're called to serve people. We're called to serve God. We're called to serve um, our congregation. We're called to serve our community. We're called to serve people who are not members of our local congregation and our faith. Um, and that's the first thing. The second thing I was emphasizing how he humbled himself, that we serve in humility. We serve in humility. Um, as we all know, um, politicians are powerful. Ministers, preachers, pastors, they're powerful. They're men and women of influence. And it's important that we use this influence under the spirit of humility, recognizing that, you know, we have got weaknesses and faults and failures. And so it's important that if we have humility, that God could speak to us, that our fellow colleagues could speak to us, 
and that we will um, listen, humble ourselves, and take heed in terms of how we could, you know, bring about whatever is wrong. And the third thing that I was emphasizing is that, you know, in serving God, we are serving for the common good of humanity. And I spoke about the fact of, you know, integrity and righteousness, because people do see us, people do question what we do. And it was interesting because I was telling them about a man, and and, and we're known as the street pastors um, on the streets. So we go out on the street and we have our ethos is to care, to listen, to help. And while I was on the streets, one early hours in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, someone was very abusive to us as we were trying to care for the vulnerable and everything. And they went on for half an hour. And at the end, he said, I don't like your religion, but I like what you do. And that's important. Two points there. One, people are watching us. People are listening to us. And people have a view about us. So in spite of that man talking all these negative things about my faith and my religion, my faith in Jesus and my, and my Christianity as an expression, he then went on to say, I don't like your religion, but I like what you're doing. And he invited, he said, come up to my flat and come and have a cup of tea, all of you. It was raining, it was wet, it was cold. And to our amazement, that man switched from hospitality, inviting us all to his apartment for a cup of tea. But then he dropped something else in which shocked all of us. He said, we, I want to invite you all for a cup of tea and two split. Split is drugs. And mm. I said to the audience in a very humorous way, I declined taking the drugs. I'll have the tea, but I'll take this, the split home to my wife. Everybody laughed, you can imagine. Okay? But the man laughed then. And that's part of me saying, I'm a human being. I've got a sense of humor. And yet, I've got a strong faith in Jesus and a strong moral conviction about how I work that faith out as a Christian day to day. So we're talking with Reverend Les Isaac. He is the founder of Ascension Trust UK. Um, he is a part of what uh, he has just shared as the street pastors. He had um, the um, the unique opportunity to preach at the London Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast on July the 5th. Um, and his words landed, I mean, with real significance um, on the heart of first one man and then by extension of his response, um, really in the hearts and minds of many others. So when we come back, we're going to talk about um, how uh, Sajid, Sajid Javid, I may be mispronouncing that, and if so, I trust that uh, Les is going to correct me, who was the UK Health Secretary, um, how this particular sermon landed on his heart and what he did in response. Because this one sermon has had an impact. It has really changed the course of human history um, and the politics of Great Britain. So we're going to talk um, more about this in just a moment. If you don't think your words matter, Think again. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. 
As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. I think Les Isaac is an example that God can and does use um, surprising human agency to achieve his will, um, not only in individual lives, but in cultures writ large. Uh, Les is the founder of the Street Pastors Initiative. He was born in Antigua. He was a Rastafarian. Um, He was involved in London's gang scene before becoming a Christian. He now uh, is engaged in... um, an organization that he founded called Street Pastors. And God um, presented him with an opportunity to stand up and speak a word of truth, um, preach a sermon at the London Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast on July 5th of this year. Les, tell us um, about the person who was listening, uh, you know, whose story we know the best in terms of his personal response to what he heard. I may be mispronouncing his name, so please help me here. Um, who was the uh, UK's health secretary who resigned um, after hearing you preach? Carmen, you got it quite right. The savage Javid, Mr. Javid. Um, and he was the health secretary, a very influential, powerful guy. He was before that um, the home secretary. So he's had some very high profile jobs within the cabinet and the conservative party and obviously you know i remember just glimpsing him coming into the room um and the breakfast room and listening and i think for me as a preacher um, as a minister of the gospel it reaffirmed the fact that we need to recognize that whenever we stand to speak for jesus through his spirit and his word, he's always speaking and convicting someone. I knew that God was speaking and I knew that what I had, the message was from the Lord. But to be quite honest, I didn't realize the impact it would have not only on Mr. Javid, but on many others. And I think for me, um, it was God saying to us as preachers, we preach the word, not just our human understanding, as Paul talks about, but demonstration of the power of God. And it was interesting because the following morning, I was in a meeting not far from Westminster um, itself, from the House of Parliament, and my phone was pinging, and my daughter then rang and says, Dad, have you heard this? And I, I, I said, no, I haven't, darling. And it was interesting just watching Mr. Javid um, speaking to the whole parliament about the decision he came to because he heard a sermon from myself. And I want to encourage all those who are preaching 
don't despise what you're saying because when the Lord is with you and the Lord's spirit works through you, his words are very powerful and could change the course of a government, of a history, of a nation because of his work. And so I was deeply moved. And so some people thought, well, okay, he's only mentioned it in parliament. But then he went on TV on the Sunday and other interviews and said how moved he was. And it, it really brought him to the place where he felt he could no longer go on, but he had to do the right thing and resign. And I, you know, I, I give God the praise for that. And it's not much about Les Isaac, but it's about Jesus and his words and his will for governments, for individuals and for nations. It is a powerful um, contemporary testimony of the kinds of things that we think we only read about in the Bible, right? I mean, people brought under real conviction, having, you know, having sat under um, honest preaching where God is allowed to have his way through the voice of a human being, in this case, you, um, where the word of God is brought to bear on a, on a person in a particular, um, you know, contemporary setting this particular individual then bearing very public testimony to the way God convicted him. Um, and then other people being convicted likewise. So this one resignation led to many others and ultimately led to the resignation of Boris Johnson. Um, and it's no small thing, right? When integrity um, is, is exalted um, and when people are brought to a place and a point of conviction um, about public service and about what God is calling us to do and who God is calling us to be. Um, talk with us uh, a little bit, if you will. Give us a little bit of your of your story, because you um, you have a unique like everyone. Right. You have a unique testimony. Mm. I love the obvious affection with which you refer to your daughter. Um, and I just, you know, talk about what God has done in your life. Well, Carmen, um, it's it's a long story, and I'm going to just try and condense it. But I say to people, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to our Lord Jesus, who have changed and transformed my life. And I'm, as you know, you stated, I'm from a little island in the Caribbean called Antigua. And um, some 56, 57 years ago, um, 57 years ago, I came to this country because of my parents and very turbulent time, you know, blending in culturally, turbulent time. Uh, my parents got divorced at the age of seven, had a profound impact on my life as a young child. And, you know, the whole issue of faith and Jesus, and there was a lot of issues around that. And yet God wonderfully did something in my life. And it, it happened that a day where my father and I had a very serious argument and I was going to go and buy a, a cutlass, a knife, a big knife to kill my father. And that very day I met a guy who was studying theology in England for three years and two weeks before he went back to his country, he spoke to me about Jesus. And he spoke to me about Jesus. I didn't ask him about Jesus. I asked him about himself. But he spoke about Jesus for 10 minutes conversation. That 10-minute conversation totally, 
you know, changed my life. I remember going home, walking home. I couldn't take transport home because I was under such conviction. I didn't want to kill my father anymore. Three days later, I went on my knees and I asked God, I said, God, I don't believe in Jesus, but if you're real, help me, help me, save me. And from that moment, something supernatural, miraculous happened that changed my whole life, that changed my nature, my thinking, my perspective of life, and really transformed me into a man of faith, looking to the Lord, believing in God. And I just really felt if this Jesus is able to do this to me, I need to know more about him. And I made a promise to Jesus that I want to serve you. I didn't know what that promise would look like, but I knew I just wanted to serve Jesus. And I wanted to tell people about Jesus. So fast forward, you know, went to theological college and studies as a minister, um, went to schools, went to colleges, um, spoke at the Louis Palau um, campaigns, did all sorts of things. And I really felt that God was challenging me to set up something because there was a lot of alcohol drinking, um, young people fighting on our streets, drugs, guns, and gangs. And I really felt the Lord challenging me about, you know, training and equipping the church to get out there from 10 o'clock at night until four in the morning to serve their community, to help engage with these difficult situations. We started with 18 people. And we've trained over 24,000 people from right across the denomination. We have 280 different teams around the United Kingdom go out on the streets at night and serve and care, help prevent people committing suicide. Um, people have given them knives and guns. People have, you know, talked about how they want to end their lives. People have given their life to Jesus. And so for me, I'm eternally grateful to the Jesus who changed my messed up life around and, you know, transformed me into this child of his, this servant of his. And it's been really awesome. I tell people it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. You guys are, who are um, texting in, yeah, you can absolutely connect directly with Les Isaac and the Ascension Trust. You can connect with um, street pastors. Go to Facebook um, and look for Ascension Trust. Same on Twitter. Um, and um, if you need more information, you can connect with me and I'll make sure you get connected with Les. Les, um, people are loving you. They are praising God for you. Uh, and so thank you so much for joining us today. What a blessing to get to meet you. I'm just so thankful for your faithfulness. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. That's uh, Reverend Les Isaac. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. Yes, I agree. Give us more of that. Give us more of that. How is the word of God going forth to transform the lives of individuals who then give themselves to the Lord, um, that he would use them, uh, that he would use us to reach others for Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen, right? Yeah, we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Our friend Peter Kapsner will be back, and then we're going to talk with Scott Sauls. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.